Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com and also in iTunes or via an RSS reader. And if you go to the show's website, you'll find all the links on the left-hand side for all of those things. The 100 by 300 membership campaign marches on. The goal is to get 100 members by the 300th show so I can keep doing this thing. I hope that you will become a member, which you can do at thejazzsession.com. There are 10 25 and $50 a month levels or 110 250 or $500 a year levels. And at any of those levels, you will be helping to keep these interviews coming to you week in and week out. My thanks to the Respect Sextet. They recorded the theme music for this show. They're online at respectsextet.com, and they have lots of great records, and you should buy them all. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo, and he tweets at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Seems like this interview today was a long time in the making. My guest is the guitarist Anthony Wilson, and he came to New York recently to perform a very special guitar quartet piece that you'll hear about in this interview. And so we had a chance to meet up in person, and I was very excited to do that. I really like Anthony and his music, and he he turned out to be uh, just as nice a guy as I had expected him to be. We're going to hear music now from the other project that we talked about during the interview, and this is his new CD, Campobello. My guest is the guitarist Anthony Wilson, and uh, it's. Uh, you said when I walked in the door, it seems like we've been trying to make this thing happen forever. It's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks. I mean, your show is amazing. Thank so, you so much. So it's a pleasure. I appreciate pleasure. that. And uh, that check that I gave you, I hope will cat will clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so we got a ton of stuff we can talk about, and uh, I thought we'd start off talking about Campobello. And I, I really like. Uh, I think I read somewhere that you said about it that you were trying to make like your Brazilian record, but not everybody else's Brazilian record, not in the same way that everybody approaches integrating this music into their own music. Can you talk a little bit about Yeah, about in a that? sense, that's that's right. Um, 
I know. And in fact, while we were making the record, some of the guys said, this is the first time we've done a record with an American where we're not just playing sambas and bossa novas. Like, and they found, they were like so happy because I asked them to swing. And, you know, they're actually a little bit, uh, they're trepidatious. You know, they're like, uh, God, can we do this? Does he really want us to actually swing? That's not our bag, so to speak. But at the same time, I knew that these guys revere that music. They love that music. And they, for example, Edu Ribeiro, the drummer, you know, he plays a Gretsch kid, and he's a Roy Haynes and Tony Williams freak. And and uh, the bass player, Guto Virchi, loves Sam Jones and Ray Brown. So they want to be able to not just play the music of their country. And this is an amazing time for music, I think, because all that stuff is just disintegrating, that sense of borders and styles, and people are learning to share a lot more of language. So, yeah, I just wanted to write songs that I felt that those guys could respond to or bring them songs that I knew that they would respond to in an authentic way, a good way, in an innocent way with freshness. And uh, rather than kind of confining myself to a groove that would be in maybe in some sense safe and it would be exactly what they knew. Right. And uh, yeah, roll the dice with that. say about uh, borders kind of collapsing, it, it, two, two recent things have, have brought that to mind. Uh, one was I was talking to Maria Schneider for a show that has an air jet, and she, she's doing uh, this, these classical works now mm. with some of her jazz people and, and people like Dawn Upshaw, and she was talking about how much she loves being alive at this time when everything is combining. And then Danny Barnes, great, uh, awesome. I mean, just one of the most amazing <laughs> thinkers and musicians, you know, he talks about this is such a great time for people who love music to be alive because you have access to everything and you can be a part of everything if you yes. choose to be and it sounds like that's where you're coming you from totally too. can you can talk to musicians from across the globe now if you like them you can contact them uh and in fact that's kind of how the campo bello happened indirectly through meeting chico pinero several years ago uh, my friend who's a guitarist down in sao paulo and we had done a duo record but that's I'm, I heard his music, and I was just knocked out by it. And I just wrote him a message saying, man, I love your music. It would be great to correspond and talk about music. And that exchange is so cool to be able to, to do that where you couldn't before. Sure. You know? uh, uh, it's, it's really good, and you can be influenced, and you can let things seep into you and, and filter into your music that... Maybe it didn't quite in another time. So And so how did that connection then lead to the record we've got now? So I first met Chico just on a trip. I, uh, we had started corresponding, and, and 
I was already listening to a lot of Brazilian music, but I wanted recommendations. So he would send me CDs, he would send me MP3s, and we just stayed in touch. And then and this I, is, I'm sorry, how, about how long ago are we talking about? Now? About about 2005. Okay. I made my first trip to Brazil, and somebody handed me one of Chico's CDs at a gig. It wasn't Chico. It was a guy that I met who was a photographer. He said, you know, I think you'll like this this guitar player. And then I had I went home to L.A. with a bag full of stuff <laughs> and started listening. And one day I put on this record, and I was like, who's that guitarist who plays sort of like Benson with a little Matheny, but is also coming straight out of Baden-Powell, an amazing Brazilian guitarist? And, and so I checked out the cover. It was this guy, Chico Pinheiro. And I remember, oh, yeah, this guy gave me a CD. Um, so that was about 2005 on the first trip that I made with Diana Krall down there. And then I contacted him, said, let's, let's talk music, let's share, share music, share files, share, you know, send each other CDs. We did that for about six months, and then I said, you know, I'm thinking about coming to Brazil for a New Year's vacation, like come down for two, three weeks. And he said, well, come to Sao Paulo, at least for part of it, and stay with me and my wife, and we'll play, and I'll introduce you to some musicians and we definitely did that, and we clicked immediately, just playing together duo. And he started introducing me to his community of folks down in Sao Paulo, which includes Edu Ribeiro, who plays in his band, an amazing piano player named Fabio Torres, a lot of guys. And as I started going down to Brazil more often, these various people that I had met on that first trip would say, oh, you know, when you're going to Rio, you need to meet <laughs> Guto Virchi or you That's need great. to hang with so-and-so. So people just, you know, they give you a number and you call or you email and then somebody says, come to this club. And, and then there's 10 more musicians to meet. So it was very kind of a social thing. And I started, I met Edu and I always loved his playing. Guto I heard playing in a forro band in a dance hall and then the next night I heard him playing his own original music at a tiny club in Rio called Cementi and I was like wow this guy plays like amazing electric bass for forro traditional dance music and then he's playing this kind of almost expansive Milton Nascimento Toninho Horta-esque kind of emotional music and uh, so we shared information as well, uh, phone numbers and emails. Andrea Memari I met about at the same time, sort of 2006, 2007. And somehow those three guys, as I had traveled and met them, I thought, man, they'll make a really cool trio because of their, because of their influence, the way they play, uh, and their, their love for so much different music. And so I just always had it in my mind, if I go back and do another album other than the duo record that I did with Chico right after meeting him, I would do my own music and I would use those guys as my trio. And uh, so that's it. I just called them. I said, I'm coming down in September. Can you, are you guys free? And everybody was like, yeah, we'll put aside the days. And we just did it. That's great. So, yeah. Now, when you were doing all that traveling, were you uh, playing as well, sitting in with those people? Or were you just there to, to listen? Yeah, to I always would try to sit in. Sometimes I arranged, well, I did the duo record with Chico in right. 2006, and so I went down several times after that, and we did promotional gigs for the record in various cities in Brazil. Okay. Um, so there were those, and then people would just people just invite you to their home all the time to play. So there's that kind of constant 
jamming that happens in Brazil, or somebody will say, hey, maybe we can just, there's that bar down the street, I think the guy will let us play tonight, and, and you just go, <laughs> and you sort of, which, so yeah, I would always try to play uh, and get together with people as much as I could, uh, and then it was also just, just leisure to kind of soak up the culture and the beaches, and because I was starting to make so many friends down there, I had places to stay. And, yeah. Yeah. Now, was there musical language for you to learn? I mean, was there a learning curve at the beginning when you first started playing down there? Yeah, there still is. I mean, really, because and it's mostly it's mostly in the rhythmic area. There are there are certain also just for guitar tradition. There are certain technical execution things. So, for example, my friend Daniel Santiago. I don't know if you've ever heard his music, but he's amazing. He has uh, an album, a recent album. Uh, called uh, Metropoli, like Metropole. Okay. Amazing, amazing album. Uh, he's, he's a great composer and uh, guitarist. And he, he'll just sit down with me and he'll show me, you know, I'll hear the rhythm, but my hand isn't executing it the way his is, my, especially my right hand. Okay. And you have this, because so much of the music is based on the dance, you know. It's based on like a two feel. Mm, mm, mm. Mm, mm. With a, you know, also a strong, it's a kind of a backbeat, but it's like the second, mm, 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 mm. and the thumb, when you're playing that on guitar, has got to be doing that. Okay. Because the thumb is taking place of the drum. So when you listen to like Joao Gilberto play, if you watch, it's always there. And then, I mean, he'll be, and then the other fingers take up that kind of, that basic, Bossa Nova, uh, or a variant of samba, Parchido Alto, like a dun 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 with the thumb, boom, 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 bum, 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 boom, bum, 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 boom, bum, bum, bum. So to learn those rhythms and really execute them in the consistent way, and then of course that's just one rhythm. And then the guys say, Well, we have maracatu and we have Blah blah blah, blah 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 right and they catalog their rhythms that way there's this there's this rhythm and this rhythm and this rhythm that's a huge learning curve i think for an american musician cuz i don't i think that's more akin maybe to something like bluegrass where right. you have certain kinds of songs or you know uh particular picking styles that go with yeah, certain I, tunes or that have names you know right, like they right. have names i mean in jazz i don't think we do that i mean 4 4 swing it's just different. It's cataloged sure. or codified, I think, in a different way. We just 
we sort of track the changes that happened. We don't say bebop is a certain rhythm, an right. actual specific thing, even though I'm sure if some musicologist <laughs> broke down what were the rhythms used in bebop, you're going to see the various changes that happened as and, and the various turnaround rhythms right. th- that, that uh, kind of made things more complex after swing or post-swing, and then et cetera, et cetera. Sure. And, um, but we don't name them as such. So for me, that's a huge thing with the learning curve with Brazilian music, just being able to keep the steady beat and play highly syncopated stuff uh, and have it be correct. Because the guys want it to be like the correct thing. Right. Um, so that's huge, and that's like just ongoing. And But the, the cool thing is a guy will just sit with you as close as we're sitting and just say, no, no, watch the thumb. Just watch. Now do this. Now let's slow it down. And it's probably how they learned when they were kids, you know, when they were sure. really young, you know. Okay, just get that motion. Now add the other top rhythm. And then, okay, well, here's the samba rhythm. This is how Joao Gilberto would play it. This is how Joao Bosco would play it. I mean, if you get with a good guy, he'll show you every little variation. And you sit for an hour and you go, okay, we just have to stop now. <laughs> right. and usually, My brain is full. And usually they're drinking beer at the same time. <laughs> and so are you. And so it's... It's an amazing thing. So, but now, good, good oh, fun. Please go ahead. Good uh, fun. To, to bring that back around now to um, to this record. So as you've been you've been absorbing that knowledge uh, over the last uh, half a decade or so, and absorbing these techniques, and now when it was time to make uh, your own record that was informed by that music, but not as you said, uh, kind of nailed down into that stylistic box. Uh, how much of that? Do we now hear on this record how much of that, the, the stylistic elements, for example? Little things. You know, like uh, there's a song on the record called March to March, which is, it's really a bossa nova song. Uh, so it has kind of a, just the very simple rhythm of, a, of a, a slower bossa nova. Something like that, it's just like, I wanted that feeling, but also within the context of maybe it's also has echoes of uh, uh, a a ballad song of modern jazz as well. So, but using that bass, using the, a rhythmic bass, or something like there's a song called Valsakatu, which is based on a actual rhythm called Maracatu from the north of Brazil, which is like a is kind of a turned around rhythm. So if that two is here again, doom, 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 it's almost a march, and the snare drum is like going. So we have one, two, one, two, and those accented things get rolled. So you start to get, and the that like second sixteenth note starts to feel like the one, and and it's an amazing rhythm to me. Normally it's just a two. And I had, I had this waltz that I was working on, and I was like, man, every time I play this waltz, I'm kind of implying this maracatu rhythm. I don't know how I heard it, but it must be just from kind of it seeped in. Sure. So we used that kind of play on a more fluid jazz waltz and then that kind of insistent maracatu rhythm imposed over it. So right. little things like that, which are fun to me because... Obviously, the drummer and the bass player, they can say, okay, let's lock in on this thing. But then when there's a place in the music where 
it can be more elastic. They just let it go, and suddenly you sound like you're in another world. So things like that, yeah. things like that. Little uh, also kind of tonal or textural things that remind me of uh, uh, music, especially from Minas Gerais, like Toninho Horta's music or uh, Milton Nascimento or Lo Borges kind of find their way into songs like Etna uh, and Patrimonio. There's certain kind of harmonic things that I love that kind of, that almost longing, like uh, like that you can hear in these kind of little bittersweet uh, chords based on like, you know, either a, a shifting bass line with a, with a middle part that just is like ascend, ascending within not such heavily moving chords, right. little things like that 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 I like from from Brazilian music. Yeah. One thing composers. I really I really like about the record is that uh, you're not afraid for it to be beautiful. I mean, it's really it's really lush and melodic. And yeah, it's really refreshing. I want that for sure. Um, little uh, pretty things, melodies that have a kind of a sweetness about it. Uh, uh, and that's something that I think these players do very well. Uh, and there are many players who do that well now. I think there's something about the Brazilian culture that is very unafraid of that, yeah. which is, is just nice. It's like, I've used this as an example talking to people. When you are in Brazil and you're walking down the street in a very poor part of a town... You may see somebody who you know really has a very, uh, very difficult life, you know, very poor. But there's this kind of, if you encounter them, you get a smile. You really do. And you can tell that it's not a put-on smile. It's not a jive thing. Like, there's this sense of, like, an openness to the moment and not really worrying about putting a veneer over it or, or complicating it and so the way these guys play is very they're able to there's a song on the record called Flor de Sumare which is kind of this chorus verse chorus verse very pretty almost sing-songy song and uh, they're just allowed the guys allow themselves to go there with it and and don't find that kind of dividing line I think because they don't see it as a dividing line between being cool or being cheesy it doesn't become cheesy right <laughs> the th you know like because there's a thing here in the states of like oh it's too pretty it's too and it's all it gets sort of towards like a you know god forbid a, a smooth jazzy thing that's saccharine you know and we right. don't want saccharine we want the authentic emotional unfettered unaf uh, unaffected moment right. to be able to exist if that's what it is. And then if there's something that's more driving and more aggressive, you also have the ability to express that. So, um, and there, all of these things are forms of beauty, whatever it is. If you're hearing uh, the prettiest song, you know, it's, it's in the world or the kind of the most beautiful dissonance in the world, they exist within that same, that same place as long as you let them be, you know? Right. Yeah.
talking about being unaffected, you posted something this morning, I think, on Facebook <laughs> yeah. about, uh, that I thought was funny. I think something was it Russell Malone who yeah, said, yeah. Uh, you know, you were playing uh, rhythm changes and swinging, and that's no, you can get arrested for it because it's no longer legal. He came right <laughs> up to York. me last night, and, and we we played with my nonette last night, and uh, due to uh, some unfortunate factors, we hadn't been able to rehearse. So there were some pieces that I had planned to play that just required a bit too much reading. So I put those aside, and I did some stuff that we could play a lot more openly, and uh, which it ended up being amazing, by the way, because there were just there were all these spontaneous things happening that uh, that I'd never even really heard in some of the arrangements that we played. But we played a rhythm changes, and we played an Oliver Nelson blues, and and Russell came right up to me and said, "You're under arrest, man. You know, you're you're swinging hard, and you're playing rhythm changes." And then. Josh Jackson was there, right? And he started giving me flack for it. He's, That's illegal in New York, man. You can't do that. But it's definitely where I come from, for sure. I mean, that thing is really valid. It's going to always be valid. It's, uh, I think as long as people can come to all... I mean, jazz is our, is, is our folk tradition. It is... If... If you have a bluegrass musician, they do go and they learn the old songs. And then if you have somebody like, I mean, I'm thinking, because I played with Julian Lodge the other day and we were talking about a lot of, of modern uh, bluegrass musicians. I mean, there's Danny Barnes that you're talking about, right. uh, uh, Chris Thiele, these Punch Brothers guys. And, you know, they know old, old stuff and they revere Ralph Stanley and they revere Appalachian ballads and they learn them. And... And they study the old recordings, and they want to play the old stuff in the right way. And that's, that's a great thing. Right now, sometimes I think people are a little afraid to just go there and embrace just like, like straight for tipping, man, and just let that quarter note be right. Um, everything's gotten kind of arch and ironic and intellectual and heady, not always a bad thing, but I know that people go to music not only to use their heads, you know. And uh, actually, I've, you know, because I follow you and many people on the various social media, like you like, I know that you respond when you when you catch something that's authentic, emotional, powerful. That's what that's what's getting to people, no matter how smart the musician is, and and so if it's Man, if it's somebody playing beautiful rhythm changes and really playing the changes, really, like, that's one of the most beautiful things that you can ever hear. And when, when uh, somebody, when a drummer is just his 4-4 is the most beautiful, steady and dancing 4-4 that you've ever heard, and he can do it dynamically and beautiful, or somebody playing Larry Golding's last night just did masterful block chord solos it's just these are part of the arts of the music that we play and i would hate to i would hate to have everything get so compartmentalized where we can't draw from everything yeah yeah Yeah, um if you'll permit me a quick anecdote i I went to uh i went to dizzy's with a trumpeter friend of mine and there were five super famous people on stage who we would both know (laughs) <laughs> and uh, they were doing a tribute to a lesser-known jazz musician from bygone days. 
And we stayed for maybe two tunes and we split. And as we were walking out, uh, we just turned to each other and said, it just felt like they didn't have any connection to that. Mm. Like they were, it was just some, it was just some way to brand what they were playing. Mm. Well then last night, uh, when I unfortunately was not seeing your nonet, I was uh, seeing, uh, among other things, the Honey Ear Trio right. with Allison Miller on drums. And she did this tune where a couple times they just slipped into exactly what you were talking about, this incredible just tipping, just totally locked, she and Renee Hart. <laughs> and, I mean, I could feel that, like, right inside me. I mean, it just goes back to, like, the core of what I started hearing when I started listening to this music. Yeah. And I find that I sometimes avoid people who I think are playing that kind of music when I get the records in the mail or whatever, because I'm just afraid mm. I'm, I'm more afraid yeah. it's going to err on the side of, I, ha- I have to do this than I, f- than I want to do this sure, on the musician sure. side. Totally my own bias. I, I completely acknowledge that, but I hear exactly what you're saying. Well, when it's great, it's great. Well, I wonder if some of the musicians who play say in that style that you're talking about, uh, Sometimes miss the point of what that old stuff. What so they're getting kind, of, they're getting at it only up to a certain level, and they're not. There's something else down deep that's right. got to be dug up, and if it doesn't get there, then you have this kind of thing that's a bit more. It's it's ripples on the surface rather than something depth that that can actually where the swing can actually move you. That's a problem, too. Whatever we do, we, we're going to have to try to find a way to get at it at depth, or else, you know, um, then it becomes either a show of technique or just because a drummer knows all of Philly Joe Jones's uh, vocabulary, it's, it's, it's the tiniest part of the voyage, you know, and, uh, and then there's that other place. I mean... You listen to Philly Joe Jones, and he's just connecting, like you're saying. And I mean, listen to to records in which the the time his time is not metronomic. I mean, you know, guy, guys today their time is steady, and you know they're they're generally not on heavy heavy drugs, and they're like, you know what I mean? They're together, <laughs> and like, but okay, it's good, man, and it's crispy, and wow. And then, okay, but still, and then you hear some Philly Joe Jones with Miles Davis and, and it drag, and the, the performance starts to drag and drag and drag, but the, the groove and the vitality and the freshness of the music transcends all the flaws. And so probably we have to be able to uh, allow <laughs> for, for not being perfect and letting the other thing come in to transcend, hopefully, if we get if we're able to get good enough, you know. Yeah.
how do you feel it is the case that you you have been able to connect to that kind of music in the way that you have? Because, I mean, from my point of view, you have. And when you play, you play in a way that, that feels to me and that authentic. I think I just knew a lot of people growing up right. um, who, I guess in a sense, they drummed that into my head. I mean, I didn't grow up in my father's house, but I spent every week, weekend with him and I rode in the car countless hours listening to the radio with him and my mom, who raised me, had an insane record collection with everything from, you know, classical music, rock and roll, country, bluegrass, lots of jazz, um, just amazing world music, uh, she loved Indian music, uh, and so they would they would sort of tell me this is this is real deal stuff and it's not when you're a kid you're just you're just listening and these older people are telling you this is real deal and listen to that that's not really happening and so without questioning it or thinking it through i think i just made my little mental inventory and then over time began to encounter more and more musicians uh you know different people who taught me who who you know, at a certain point, I met Kenny Burrell. At a certain point, I got to work with Harold Land and Billy Higgins, which was huge for me because Billy Higgins, for me of all time, he's my favorite drummer. And uh, and the, just watching the simplicity, the joy, the intensity, especially simplicity. When you see people like that, break it down and just you. You can tell all the stuff they've gotten rid of to get to that essence. Kenny Burrell's another. Um, I would just watch them and go, that's that's the way I want to do it. That's the way I want to do it. Or mm, I loved listening to Segovia when I was a kid just because of the purity of sound. I liked listening to how warm and pure the sound is. So for me, I'm always going... You grow up a bit and you start to become more conscious about the way you think about things. And and for me, that was, okay, I want to strip away at a lot of things, especially things like too much velocity playing or too many things that are patternistic and go towards melody, go towards a kind of a warm sound. This became like a conscious thing for me. I want my sound to be warm and clear without lots of stuff around it so I don't I personally don't use a lot of effects. Every now and then I'll use an effect because I like how it helps express the music, but generally I plug into the amp or more and more these days I play acoustically. These are all became like over time conscious choices because my values had to do with like sound, simplicity, groove, swing, swing across whatever kind of rhythm I'm playing. So yeah, I think I just encountered a lot of people who helped me see that, you know, uh, in various ways. You know. It's so interesting that you hear time and again people say that stripping things away. That yeah, uh, it seems like that's a a common theme with a lot of the players <laughs> that I respect. That it's over time, it's almost as important to learn what you leave behind. I think so. I mean, you're a poet too. You probably end up editing, you know, a lot like out. <laughs> and you li- and I know that you like uh, you like certain poets like. Are, are you a Robert Creeley fan? Did oh, I see? Yeah. I mean, the the economy and the amount that, I mean, he probably at this point just uh, he just did it so naturally. But like, the lines that are so spare but say everything. I, I don't know. There's something about that. Um, and I often think about like just line drawing. And I I love the idea that 
a line can have contour. But if you have too much going on in the line, it won't have a contour. It'll just be a messy thing. So you're trying to get your musical line be clear enough that you can you can see where the curve goes, where where it leads, or what kind of motion it has. Uh, right. So yeah, I think it's a huge thing that we're all trying to deal with. And and I actually don't think, I mean, there are some people with incredible ability to play with insane velocity, and you still get the feeling that they've they've learned exactly what to take away to let those fast, beautiful lines soar and do the right thing. So it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you have to play slow. or that Right, you, it's not know. about minimalism necessarily. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Just about knowing the appropriate right. thing. Or right, right, right. That's interesting. I also always think there's this thing with tracking. I, I think a lot of the players that I love and composers that I love the most, they seem to, this may be a, like a kind of a fantasy or some, something that I've projected onto it, um, and in some ways I've learned it a little from my own improvising is that when I'm really, really tracking my musical line or whatever I'm playing, and even if I'm playing a multi-voice thing, so I'm tracking the various voices within the chord and the bass and the melody, when I'm most, when I actually get into and can really, can really track where each line is going that I'm making, then the music is powerful. When I lose the track or when it, it sort of gets away from me, then I find my fingers just moving or something. How are you using the word, the word tracking in this sense? So what it's like I stay present with each note that I'm playing, basically. I stay present. And I don't know if it's that I always intend it, because I think with improvising, there's something that we don't understand about whether we're intending it or willing it into being or however you might put it, or whether it comes into being or whether we're kind of transcribing it, but the sense of being present enough to really watch it so that what happens is that your fingers aren't just moving automatically. Because I think a lot of us can just, you develop facility over many years playing your instrument, so at some point you can easily suddenly just, your fingers will go and you might even be really making the change as well, but you're still not in that place of presence. And I think when we, a lot of the players that we love or composers, I know for me that I love, you can hear that they're right there with every note. And no matter how fast it is, that's, to me, that's a mind-blowing thing to see. You know? Yeah. Can I ask you this? And uh, if this becomes uncomfortable, we can just, we'll just take it out. Um, <laughs> I was having a conversation with two musician friends about when people solo on stage and the members of the band who are not in the rhythm section leave the stage, like walk <laughs> off stage. And to me, as a, as a, just as a listener, the message that sends to me is I, I'm not valuing enough what's happening on stage here. Well, then why should I? Why should I in the audience? And I know people do it all the time, or you see like the horn players over on the side talking to each other, that sure. kind of thing, which I have to say drives me out of my mind. And so to this idea of presence, it, it strikes me that like in some bands, like even just to take the show I saw last night, there was never a moment when it didn't seem like everybody on that stage was totally invested in what was happening. And when the other people were playing and they weren't, they were watching and listening, mm -hmm. and you could hear callbacks and things that had happened before. That is the music that draws me in when it just feels like 
yeah, we're doing this, and we all know how to do it so easily. And yeah, I've heard this guy solo a million times. I don't need to hear this one. Sure. That just that distances me as a listener. So I don't want to put you in an awkward position no, of talking about stage etiquette or anything. But anyway, I'd like no, to hear your thoughts on it. No, but I know what it. you're saying. It's interesting. Well, we played last night, and you know, sometimes it's it's even on a situation by situation basis. Uh, so last night we were rather unrehearsed, but that ended up being. I mean, I had friends who came up to me last night and said, "Don't ever rehearse again like this." You know, so so good. You've learned the secret, right? But yeah. so the guys were well. Smalls is tiny, so nobody can really go anywhere. Right. But guys were kind of sitting down, and you know, they might be messing with their horn a little bit. But I got the sense that everybody was right there when they when they were needed to be called upon, or if I wanted to set up a riff, or if somebody else wanted to set up a riff. I think it's mostly about. Uh, that is like, yeah, if you sense that the musicians that you're hearing or that you're playing with aren't there with you, then you got a problem. And uh, I remember doing one gig with my nonette that was a double bill with another large band. And I know that our band gave a better show that night. I mean, we were just, everybody was more together. And the other band, like there was so much motion on stage and so much of this kind of bullshitting like there was talking and I just I wondered about the commitment to anybody on that gig about what they were actually playing although they were all great players and it, it's just it's that was one of those situations where I thought it really didn't work and the leader of the band needed to kind of, somebody needed to rein his guys in and say don't let's like stay and like be with each other because like I mean, you really had like guys, and they were just like moving around, and then it just seemed it just seemed slovenly or something, and and uh, that you don't want. I mean, we've 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 seen like famous videos of like Paul Gonzalez nodding out on the stand and stuff, and heard countless stories of this kind of stuff, and it's always funny and. Let's just, I, I would guess that Duke Ellington's music just transcends all of that, so it doesn't right. matter, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, I think, I think what you're saying is really valid. It's, it's you, would, you, you also don't want to see just ultra, you know, militaristic discipline, but you want right. to have the sense that, I mean... That you're seeing a unit, you're seeing an ensemble. Yeah. I, I love that. You know. Yeah, I guess it is that feeling of investment. I, I don't want to sound like a fascist yeah. about it. I mean, people sometimes, <laughs> sometimes something funny happens, and or someone needs to say something to the other guy, or they've been on the road for right. six weeks, and right. although you're seeing them for the first time, they've been in a car together or whatever. Sure, so sure. all the, all of that stuff is real, and I totally I totally understand that. But yeah, I guess for me, it is more that feeling of investment, like yeah. that the. That it's it feels like it's as important to the people playing it as it is for me who's just getting the chance sure. to see it. I want to feel that coming from the stage. Sometimes people don't have a real consciousness that they're actually being listened to. I mean, and that that goes over that that's that's an umbrella that you can think of over all music. So some, sometimes people make records as though nobody's ever going to listen to the record. Sometimes people play concerts as though there's not people out there, and. Uh, which doesn't mean entertaining people, but it means getting to a place where you're communicating something and you're working together towards uh, a collective sound and you're making it. So sometimes, you know, you hear records where it sounds like four guys. And that's also complicated 
by the fact that now most records are made with people in different rooms. So guys have earphones on, so if they're not careful, they play for themselves. And you see this on gigs sometimes if, if certain kinds of ensembles are placed together, either a promoter's idea of a good, uh, you know, something that would be great for an audience. And then it turns out to be the exact opposite because <laughs> that, that, that uh, consciousness that you're making music and somebody's listening, somebody's actually listening, and that completes the circle. It's not just you playing for you, you know? Right. I mean, uh, the guitarist Adam Levy, he's, do you know his thing about 13 questions that he asked to different guitarists? No, I don't. And one of his questions is what makes a perfect gig, and I've been thinking about it a lot because I'm, I'm writing one for him. And, and uh, So he asked the same 13 questions to different guitarists that he knows and likes, and uh, maybe some that he doesn't like, I'm not sure, <laughs> but... Uh, I was saying, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, well, a good gig for me is one where I come away with it. Like, I could say a lot of really facetious things <laughs> about what would make a good gig, but uh, a real honest answer to that and, and a real answer is, like, when I know that I was actually listening to the other guys, I know it was a good gig. It's less about what I was playing, but I was listening. So he's playing, I'm listening, and... The band has to listen to each other. You're there, you're listening, and then we make something together. You know, it sounds maybe a little new agey, but I think it's real, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I think for all that Miles Davis said about disdaining the audience, I think he knew that there was an audience, and he knew how to communicate with it. I think he did, you know, and he knew how to put bands together that communicated and he was doing that. You yeah, know? I agree. so he could talk as much <laughs> I totally as he agree. wanted to. You know, <laughs> how do you, as a uh, as a band leader, in addition to just hiring the right people, how do you create that and, and reinforce that environment of let's all be here together, let's all be present? Just try to be there myself. Usually, that's you know you can't be responsible for other people, and and at the at same time, I. In fact, that's actually, I write differently now than I used to. Over a lot of years of having different formats of bands, I used to write a lot more into my parts um, uh, or into my arrangements. And over time, I realized I need less and less of that stuff. Plus, I'm a really, I'm a real fan of having lots of improvisation right so but i used to do it in a much different way like i would kind of write something and then plug the improvisation in there so so because i thought well this is going to lead to that and it's going to direct the soloist into a certain place uh that's going to further my aims as a composer and i don't think that way anymore um the way i think is mostly like i just want something integrated so and I want to hear the voices of the different people that allow something else to happen that I didn't allow, that I didn't intend, actually, as a composer, this kind of, uh, you know, almost authoritarian, like, I have a piece and I have my aims, so I'm going to, you know, I heard Bob Brookmeyer say something about this, like, you don't have a soloist play until there's absolutely nothing more that you can write. And so you have these, like, totally micromanaged pieces that are, in my opinion, the opposite of the kind of music that I want to make. So uh, over time, I've learned just like write less, have actually less strict aims, but write in a way 
that that maybe allows a guy to hear his voice within the music. That's what I try to do. So even in a small group in a quartet, where the the arrangements aren't as detailed, um, just bring in something with enough room that a guy or a girl can uh, can can really put their own thing on it while still allowing the basic feeling or the kind of the overall feeling of the piece to exist and then I think you have a real integration of improvisation and writing and so for me that's the way I I create an environment of presence like bringing something strong enough with enough room that a person can like go in to it right. and exist there in the music otherwise uh, I don't do much else except just try to concentrate I'm usually I'm usually concentrating so hard, if I, especially if I'm working on a new piece. I'm like, at first, getting my part right. But <laughs> it, is, it is more like get the good musician. So, that, <laughs> and then, oh, it starts to happen, and then I relax, and then we relax and we play. You know. Yeah. I was uh, unfortunately out of town over the weekend, and so I didn't get a chance to see uh, some exciting new music that you've written. And I hope you'll uh, you'll talk about the uh, quartet. Yeah, um, we did a concert of an original piece of mine that I wrote for a guitar quartet. So a quartet of guitars. It was actually commissioned by a guitar maker um, who is named John Monteleone. He lives out in Long Island, and he's just now beginning to get his real due, his real uh, recognition that he deserves. And his work is currently being featured in an exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, along with two other Italian-American guitar builders that were based in the New York area in the 20th century. So it's kind of tracking the, the exhibit tracks the tradition of stringed instrument buildings uh, building that came from Italy after the 17th century. So when you think of Stradivari violins and the traditions of violin making and cello, arch top, uh, carved top, cello 
stringed instruments from, from Europe, that tradition came into the States and different people started building instruments and that way of building stringed instruments got translated to the guitar. In fact, by, uh, by Orville Gibson, the, the guy who started Gibson, but then these particular Italian Americans took it to another level. So that's the that's the point of the exhibit, and it happens to feature about thirty different instruments from each of those makers, as well as some other historical examples. And John Monteleone, who happens to still be alive, uh, was featured, and he had built, and they're and they're actually on display in this exhibit, a quartet of guitars that he meant to be inseparable. This was long before the exhibit was ever planned. It was just something he did for himself in his spare time. It took him about six years to finish because, of course, he was making guitars for other people. And he had built these this quartet of guitars that his intention was would never, ever be separated. They would always be sold as one or they would, whether it's sold or they'd be together. And he thought from the beginning, God, you know, I'd really like to have a piece of music that would allow them to to do their thing. And at some point, we were together uh, driving in a car in California down the coast, and he looked at me, and he was telling me how he was doing on building the guitars, and he said, you know what, I've always wanted a piece of music, and I'm realizing that you'd be the person to write something for them. You know the guitars already. You've been playing my own guitars for several years now, would you write a piece? And I said, absolutely. And we never really thought that there would end up being something like this exhibit, which would provide a kind of a, a center to the whole thing and, and, a, and a real opportunity for a major premiere. But that's what it was. And so I, uh, I wrote this piece, which is a four-movement piece based on the seasons, because the guitars are called the Four Seasons. Um, can I just ask, yeah. uh, not to interrupt you, but are they different from one another in yes. substantial ways? Yes. Not, okay. not incredibly substantial. They're all archtop guitars, so they're okay. all made in that exact same tradition of violins and cellos from Europe. So the, the top is spruce, and it's carved on the inside and outside to be a real resonating uh, top. And, and then you have a maple back that's also arched, and it's it's a, like a soundboard. And so you, the instrument is almost like a really resonant drum, and then that's why great violins and great cellos speak so well. So they're all consistent in that in being archtop guitars of the okay. same basic size, but there's little differences in the placement and shape and size of sound holes. Okay, um, and then different woods uh, that he'd collected that he'd put aside, and he thought, well, this one would make a good one. This this wood would be great on that guitar, et cetera, et cetera. So they all have different voices. Uh, some are kind of more deep and warm. There's one that has this kind of great throatiness to it, uh, which is the spring guitar. It's like a it's a great like searing melody guitar. Uh, uh, there's a summer guitar which has a based on an old mandolin design. So it has this kind of scroll here. You know, as the curve goes here, then it has this kind of ornate scroll, but that sends that sends air up into these, you know, it vibrates up there and it has its own kind of unique sound. So as I got to know these different guitars and the way they sounded, I wrote music 
specifically for them. And were they designed to kind of uh, to complement one another, to resonate with one another? In yeah, some that was way? his whole. As he built these guitars, he hoped that he would have something that would be a real ensemble because it's not like a string quartet where you have a low voice, a mid voice, and two high voices. Right. They all have the exact same range. So, like, you know, I mean, if you have a, well, a piano quartet or something, they still all have the exact same amount of notes that they can play. So that's, that's, a, that's a limitation in a sense because if it was a seven-string guitar that, went, that could go down to a low C or low B naturally uh, without being detuned, that's just the, and then you had a six-string guitar and then maybe uh, another guitar that was of a smaller body and then a mandolin, you'd have actual registers to play with right. that, were, that were unique to each guitar. But this, it's just basically that each one seems to lend itself to a different activity the best although they're all extremely even throughout the whole register. So if I suddenly have the spring guitar, which is great on melody, suddenly go down and play the bass, it's natural for it to do it, but the bass is going to have a bit of a different tonal characteristic. So I was just learning these guitars over time. I think he asked me to write the piece back in 06 or 07, and I would go to his shop in Islip, New York, and he'd take the guitars out of the cases, and, and I would just sit and gather themes, and I had little notebooks with themes. Eventually, I started sketching stuff. And then over the last six months, I, I really wrote a, a very kind of contrapuntal piece with a lot of room for improvisation. Um, and uh, we, I really wanted to have four different, real different voices, guys who played quite differently. So Julian Lodge was one of the guitar players on the concert. Steve Cardenas was another, and Chico Pinheiro from Brazil, which was really important to me because one, one uh, movement in the piece is, is like straight-up samba. And so I wanted the voice to be like a real s samba player. And uh, it was amazing to hear because I'd thought about all these parts on my own, and I'd check them out and they're all playable but then when you give them to another guitarist who can really make it sing in his own way it, it was something special to me it's something i don't th i don't know if i've ever heard four guitars do what this piece allows four guitars to do so as far as achieving my goals i was really happy you know and it's very musical yeah i saw steve uh two nights later and mm. he was that was the very first thing he mentioned when i said mm. hey what's been going on recently he said oh i did this guitar thing it was amazing and he was really it was amazing it. for all of us it was, i mean it was amazing to play monteleone's seasons guitars but the the music itself could be played on any set of instruments there's just if you were doing it on electric instruments, it would be, wow, it would be a wild kind of thing. But uh, uh, I felt happy that just the improvisation melded with what I had written in that same way that I'm, that I'm talking about. Like, just enough structure to allow somebody's voice to then say what it has to say rather than what I want it to say. Right. That's so important to me as a jazz composer. Like, I don't want to tell an improviser what to do. The whole point of improvisation is that I want to be surprised. I want to hear 
that other thing, you know, yeah. that changes the music in some really significant way. So I was really happy with, with how that happened in the guitar quartet. You know, each of these guys just had a, had different places to, to play that allowed them to express their voice and then express the guitar's voice. So, so when is this record coming out? So we can, uh, hopefully September. That's what I'm, I'm, that's what I'm leaning towards. So, and we, filmed it like we did a whole three camera oh wow shoot so we're going to do a short film about the guitars and the players and the piece uh so there will be a cd with the whole concert which we recorded live and then a dvd with like probably a 45 minute film about the thing that will include basically just the performance of the seasons and maybe some other little excerpts um so in the same package so we just got to get it mixed uh mastered and i'm thinking September. Fabulous. Yeah. Cool. So, so finally, I just want to say uh, one of the things that I, I always feel a little sad for the listeners of is that this show doesn't have any video. Uh, because one, it's been so much fun to watch you um, – because you obviously have such a physical connection to the music you play, and even like just talking about the guitars, it, I almost feel like you're holding them while you're talking mm. about it. It just seems like, like the actual physical instrument – itself is something you spend a lot of time thinking about, not just the music that you make on it. Sure. And it's, it's crazy, too, because, like, sometimes you see people who have, like, the perfect posture, you know, and, like, and the instrument sits in their hand or they're a piano player and they're just upright or, you know, I don't think they're really any less physical. They may have just worked on their posture. I mean, actually, Julian Lodge, he's an amazing example because he just... He's like, his back is so straight and open, and he plays in this very easy way, and plus he pulls off these things that are... This guy is 23 years old, and yeah, technically... kind of ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> he's a monster. I love his playing. I love the joy that he has. And that same kind of... Uh, that uprightness, easiness, centeredness, which is no less physical, but I know that for me, I'm like very like... Oh, you know, like I'm working with the instrument to do certain things, and... It has to do sometimes with hands or getting close to it. Yeah, I do find music to be pretty physical. Uh, sometimes I feel like I work harder at it than it should be, actually, you know. <laughs> but then I think about, like, seeing pictures of, you know, seeing films of Bill Evans or, uh, you know, there's certain guys who just they're, the way they orient to the instrument or, uh, is is very, like, worked and physical you know and that's uh I, I mean for me it's just as a guitar player i'm always i feel like i'm really working to bring sound out mm. and various things that i do uh actually make that happen more or less like i do a lot of kind of pulling on the neck of the guitar and work with different forms of vibrato um, and pulling on the neck bends the pitch, or yeah, it actually okay. creates these create different. I mean, I'll I might be playing and hold the body a little bit while I'm playing and be kind of rocking the neck, but not like in that way where it's just like this, but actually creating a little tension in the instrument that's giving me some. It's various forms of vibrato and okay. working with with sustain and vibrato to me hugely important um uh because i don't use a lot of reverb and delay i need to sustain with my fingers 
So that's something I really work on. I'm, yeah, so pretty physical, and, and I hunch over. I don't know. I really <laughs> hope that I don't end up, you know, like, like, <laughs> right. like you know, hobbled over. But, uh, yeah, it is something. And then there's also something that I – part of that whole learning curve, learning experience from Brazil is just, like, learning how much – is connected to dance. You know, one mm-hmm. thing, going down to Brazil and learning how to even credibly dance and, you know, when you go to places in, in Rio and Sao Paulo, you ask you ask people to dance and you're going to dance. And we don't really do that here. You know, musici- musicians don't dance, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but man, that's, God, that's the base of music and that's the it really is the base of the music we play, too. I mean, you could be somebody like Wynton Marsalis, who sort of beats this thing like a dead horse. You know, it's it's dance and it's the blues. He's got all his various sound bites that he talks about, and, and everybody ends up being a little bored because it's pedantic and it's, you know. <laughs> but he's But recognizing that this music did come from dance, you know, and people used to dance to it, doesn't mean we have to dance, but somehow for me, getting connected to dancing down in Brazil has been huge for me. Because so like, just that sense of a, a steady center and a momentum of the beat. So yeah, I've, I've definitely experienced music physically. It's important to me. You know, yeah. my guest is Anthony Wilson, and uh, man, I've just I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. It's been it's been so much fun. Same here, man. And, Same here. Uh, Finally. Yes, so, so. absolutely. Uh, long overdue. Uh, definitely check out uh, the CD Campo Bello, which is amazing. And uh, in the fall, sounds like we're going to have another great uh, record. Absolutely. I think out. it'll probably be called something like Four Seasons Live at the Met, because the, the concert was at the Metropolitan Museum, or A Day at the Met, or something like that. So Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on the show. You got it. Thanks, Jason.
That's music from guitarist Anthony Wilson and his new record, Campobello. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Please do go online to thejazzsession.com and become a member. I need your help to get to 100 members by the 300th show and to be able to keep doing this thing, and I hope that you will join. The last show, the 300th show, will be at the end of August. And uh, that's when the deadline is for getting 100 members and keeping the show going. So please do support the show with your membership. Thank you very much. Now get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.